So we're looking at um, Mark 5, and uh, we're, we're kind of starting to make our way through. I think this is like our 19th week together. And uh, we're looking at Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, and this account of Jesus healing uh, this demon-possessed man. Now, uh, let's read it together, and then we will hop into it. Uh, starting in verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And, there, uh, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So we're looking at this new account um, this week of Jesus dealing with this demon-possessed man. And uh, the last time that we were in the book of Mark together, we found Jesus uh, he, he and his disciples, they were in a boat upon the shore, and they were, they were teaching, uh, Jesus was teaching in parables to a great multitude, and uh, this was on the, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, upon finishing that teaching, Jesus and the disciples, they got into the boat, and he said, you know, let's go over to the other side. And, and he and his disciples, they headed off across the sea. But along the way, his disciples, who a, a good portion of them were professional fishermen and were very familiar with the lake, uh, they encountered this storm, and it was overtaking them. They were, they were fearful. And yet, uh, as they went to wake up Jesus, you know, they thought they were going to die. They went to wake up Jesus. Jesus simply spoke to the storm and calmed it. Out of that, out of that chaos, Jesus brought calm. Out of, uh, just by speaking a word, his authority calmed the sea. And not only uh, did it calm, you know, the, the water, but it calmed the waves and the wind. And there was a perfect calm upon uh, the ocean, or I guess it's not an ocean, it's a lake. Um, now, when, now when he did that, it, it, 
it was totally, um, you know, terrifying to the disciples. It was something that just brought great fear upon them. At first, they were afraid of the wind and the waves. But after they saw Jesus's authority, they were even more afraid, it says. And they were afraid at, at the fact that Jesus allowed them to go through those storms, that he loved them and he knew that they were going to encounter that. But you know, if he did love them and allow them to go through that, what, what more was to come? What more, you know, were they going to deal with as being followers of Christ? And so Jesus has this effect whenever there's chaos, when he's brought into the situation, he brings this, this calm. He brings a control to the situation. And, and so as they're, they're coming across the sea and they deal with this, Jesus has this authority over the wind and the waves, but he demonstrates more than that. He demonstrates that, that he uh, is willing to take his disciples you know, and those who follow him through rough seas, through trials and tribulations, things that you wouldn't expect, you know, by thinking, okay, well, Jesus is in control, and so it's just going to be smooth sailing. You know, Jesus led them into this situation. Now, the, that ability to calm a storm or, or to calm and to control the wind and the waves, that was something that was only attributed to God. And so they realized that they're in the boat with God. Now, Jesus had this appointment on the other side of the sea. And when we read that initial account, he says, let's go across to the other side. When we read it, it's kind of like, yeah, sure. Like, let's take a little trip. You know, we're going to go across there. Now, the disciples didn't really know why they were going across there, nor would they have reason to go across there. And the man that Jesus had an appointment with on the other side, he didn't know that he had an appointment with Jesus, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he was going to have this encounter uh, with this man. And And so they go to the other side of the sea. In verse 1, he says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So, first off, the the setting of this story is unique. It's, It's important because, as I was saying, they didn't really have any business on the other side of the sea. The the Jews would never make their way to the eastern side of the sea because it was entirely Gentile territory. Uh, it, this whole area was was um, dominated by Gentiles, and they were considered unclean by the Jews. Now, not only were was the area considered an unclean area because of the Gentiles? The story is, it's actually just filled with this whole idea of uncleanness being on, uh, you know, throughout the story. They were going into this eastern side of the sea, into this Gentile region called Decapolis. Now, Decapolis, it was, it was a 10-city region. It was, it was like 10 super, you know, it's like, it was basically a display of their power and of their might. When, uh, when Pompey, he invaded the area in 63 BC, he established these 10 cities as a showcase of the pagan culture. That was the, the point of him establishing these. They were to, to mark, you know, this pagan culture and to, to promote it amongst the people that lived in that area. And so, as they, as Jesus rolls up into, you know, probably the most seemingly enemy, enemy territory, and it's probably the disciples' first time making their way into this purely Gentile pagan culture, as they step out of the boat, immediately opposition shows up. Like Jesus doesn't even, you know, it, it says as soon as he gets out of the boat, he's, he's encountered by pagan opposition. 
um, this man with an unclean spirit, he, he just comes charging at Jesus. Verse, uh, verse 2 says, uh, this, this man with an unclean spirit here, he lived among the tombs. He, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, he, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched them apart. I mean, they had tried to subdue this man before. They had tried to, to many times to bind him with hands and feet, but he, he broke them apart. The description of, of the demoniac here, it's one of the most vivid pictures in, of, uh, in the Bible of just human wretchedness. It's the, one of the most intense depictions of the human condition. Not only is, is this man who is fully given over to himself, uh, you know, possessed by a demon, but he's also living among the tombs. He's cutting himself. Uh, he, he's living among, you know, he's living with with, I'm sure, disease as that exists among, uh, you know, tombs. No one could bind him with chains. And so, you know, I'm sure he was all tore up from breaking out of these things. And nobody had the strength to subdue him. And, and it says that day and night he's crying out, you know, and cutting himself. Um, the way that Mark speaks of this man, it's, it's super brutal in, in the language that he uses. He says that this man couldn't be couldn't be bound. He couldn't be he couldn't be overtaken by chains. He couldn't be overtaken by by bindings or irons. He likens this to the same wording that we find in James chapter three when it talks about you know uh, taming wild animals. This this man is not so much of a man, but but actually he's more of a of a wild beast living in the tombs. Luke tells us that this man had been possessed for a really long time. He also tells us that the man wore no clothes. So he's just out there doing whatever he wants. You know, he had this supernatural strength where he couldn't be bound. Um, he, he had been handcuffed many times before. He had been, he, he had been bound at the feet. But every single time, he's broken through those uh, chains. It also, he also indicates that this man was just totally out of control. He had, a, he had, a, he had uncontrollable behavior and w- did whatever he wanted to do. And then additionally, when it talks about him crying out, it's not like, it's not like he's crying out weeping. It actually is, um, it's like a shriek, like the creepy kind, you know? Like the, I, for whatever reason, when I think about like that sort of thing, I always think of the smoke monster in Lost, where it's like that like, but a cross between that and like those like alien movies where it's like that high pitched creepy shriek, I'm sure it was probably pretty bad. But this man is just you know he's he's wandering throughout the tombs, shrieking. He's he's naked. He's he's got supernatural strength. And so as he was um, as he's doing this, no doubt that this started in the area of Decapolis. So the people were aware of who he was. He was there among them. They had tried to come and bind him. They, he, was, he was in the area destroying the lives of the people that he was around. This man was in a place where, you know, anybody that would come around him, he would attack them. He would, he would intimidate them. He would seek to destroy them. But now he's banished to the tombs. He's living among the dead. This, this guy who's alive, yet he's living among those who are dead. Now his banishment to the tombs, it, it, this is a mark of that uncleanness because according to the, uh, the ritual, uh, you know, according to the law, 
um, in uh, Numbers 19, it, it talks about you cannot live among, you, you can't touch anything that's dead. And so this man would have been considered uh, unclean to the Jews who were coming over. He would have been unclean to Jesus who was coming over. And not only, not only was he unclean because he was touching things that were dead and were, was making his, his home around things that were dead, he also uh, you know, further didn't, didn't abide by the law in that he didn't, uh, he didn't go through the rituals to purify himself as a result. And so the, the law talks about anyone who fails to, to purify themselves as a result of touching something that's dead should be cut off from the nation of Israel. And so this guy is like the furthest you could get from, from being, you know, clean in the, in the Jewish mind. But isn't this like, isn't this such the case where, you know, it's, as, you, as, you, as I was considering that, I was like, this is, this is the perfect sort of situation. And this is, this is, even that is the condition of man within, with him. You know, w- with you and I, the whole, the whole issue is we continually try to purify ourselves, but it's only Jesus that can purify. And this man is stuck in the situation where he's been there for so long. He's so enslaved and in bondage, yet the only way that he's going to get out of this is through the work of another person, you know, and Jesus coming and purifying him. Now, he was, he was tormented and, and self-destructed, it talks about. He was, this man was in agony, and he was, he was at war with the people in that region of Decapolis. And so as he was banished to the tombs, he had no one else to torment, and so he turned to himself. The only person that was left to hurt was himself. And so the demon begins to control him and to, to tell him to cut himself and to, uh, to destroy himself. It, it, it's really a, a sad picture. But, but what's more interesting is to consider his state, you know, because this is, this is the state that, that we live in, the argument that we deal with, with uh, people in the world. It's all about freedom, right? Like, I want to have my choice. I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. This man was completely free. He had free reign. No one could tell him what to do. Nobody could control him. He was the most powerful. He, he was able to go as he pleased. He was able, you know, if someone went to bind him, he could break out of it. He could do whatever he wanted. He was the ultimate picture of freedom. If, if there was anybody that could be happy with their freedom, you know, it would be this man. No one could do anything about him. He's overcome everybody who has come to bind him. But yet he's tormented. Yet he's, he's, he's in trouble. He's actually, he's free, but he's enslaved. He, he, it seems on the outside that he can do whatever he wants, but he's, he's so in anguish and tormented, and, and, and he's in bondage uh, to this demon. Chains couldn't hold him. Nobody was stronger than him, but yet he's miserable, and he, he, he's here cutting himself. Now, verse 6 through verse 8, uh, he, he goes on, he says, And when Jesus saw from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So this man, 
who is controlled by this demon, he, he charges at Jesus. And, and as Jesus is kind of the first one to, to break in, this light breaking into darkness, the first one to pierce that, that wall of ritual uncleanness, Jesus comes in. And, and this is probably the first instance where as this man who is possessed by the demon charges, you know, in full shriek at, at his victim, that, that the victim doesn't run and, and charge away in fear. But yet, what happens here is, is that when the demoniac meets Jesus, it's a no-contest event. He falls immediately at, at his feet. The, the word that it actually speaks of there, it, it's one to fall on your knees and to prostrate yourself before in worship. It, it, it's one where he is submitting himself before Jesus. That doesn't mean that he is worshiping him because of his faith, but it's because of Jesus' holiness. You know, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. They can't, he, this man is at war with him, but yet his, his, this demon that is controlling him does not have the power and authority to overcome Jesus. Now, he tries because in that, in that um, realm and in that time, there was often this, sort of situation where uh, it was kind of taught amongst a lot of the, the secular um, cultures that the way that you gained control over someone in a spiritual battle was by knowing their name. And so when, when this man runs at, uh, at Jesus, he's trying to kind of call him out and to, to you know, what, what we're seeing is he's trying to kind of establish his authority over Jesus by saying the name of your opponent. The name of your spiritual opponent, you know, it was supposedly thought that this would give you authority over the person that you were seeking to, uh, to do battle with. But, but when he gets to Jesus, this man immediately falls down. He doesn't have, he doesn't have any standing uh, by which he can attack. Now, it wasn't the man himself who, who was bringing himself and, and prostrating himself before Jesus. This was the, the man under the control of the demon. And the demon was the source of this, of this, uh, this particular uh, action here. Notice that the demon knows who Jesus is. The demon, he is immediately brought to his knees, but that doesn't mean that he is submitted to Jesus. This is, uh, it's, it, it's a, it's a situation, you know, that we encounter often just because you know who Jesus is, just because you seem like you're walking the walk, that doesn't necessarily mean that your life is submitted to him. You could have lots of outward actions, but that doesn't mean that your life is necessarily submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so this man who's possessed by the demon, he, he's brought to his knees and then and then the demon uses this phrase, uh, son of the most high God. Now, it's important in his use, what, he, what he's doing there. In Judaism, the most high God, what it, it emphasizes this transcendence and, and exaltation of Israel's God over all the other gods. And, and in our day, um, the way that like, in the short answer, when you're talking with you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you're talking about like, oh, there's no other gods, you know, that, that's factually true to a sense because what you're saying is there's only one true God. Now, 
in this instance, Decapolis was overrun by demons. It was a city that was established. I mean, historically, when you look at secular historians, they, they say that demons loved the area of Decapolis. Like this was an area for them to camp out. This was a stronghold for them, much like Berkeley. I mean, this is, you know, you want to get down in battle, this is the place to do it. Jesus is dealing with, with the demons here. And so when, when he's saying, uh, when the demon is calling him out and he's saying, you're the, the son of the most high God, he's saying that you are the God above all other gods. Now we need to be real about this because you'll get into conversations with other people and they'll talk to you about, you know, they serve other gods and they experience, you know, certain things and, and little bits of, of uh, power and supernatural activity. And they'll say like, well, I serve this God, you know, and don't be deceived in, the, in your mind where you're thinking like, there's no other gods, that's not real. Their gods are demons. Like that's how it works. So it's, there's a real spiritual realm. And when they say they serve other gods, it's, they're serving demons. And demons are working to deceive. They're working to shift their focus away from Christ. And so we can't be naive to kind of have the, you know, the cheap, quick Sunday school answer where it's like, there's no other gods, they don't exist, and blinders on. There's a very spirit, it's a very real spiritual realm that we deal with. We need to be aware that people will make those claims and, and, and they may have experienced something supernatural, but that doesn't mean that it was Christ. You know, they are worshiping demons, essentially. And demons are ruling over the, these areas. Satan is, is working in these areas. Um, a lot of commentators actually believe uh, in the storm that, that Jesus was coming uh, across, that Satan actually helped stir up that storm to, to sink that ship and to, to cause, uh, you know, Christ to die. Um, and so the demons here, they're submitted to, you know, they're, they're fall before Christ, but they're not necessarily submitted to him. And they use this, uh, this phrase that is denoting Jesus's uniqueness and his complete authority. They're calling him out as, as one with God. They know, you know, it's been the theme throughout the book of, of Mark, where Mark is seeking to establish that Jesus is the son of God that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. And the demons know, but people don't seem to get it as Jesus continues to reveal himself again and again. Now, although this man, he, you know, obviously, if he was here today, everybody would be a little bit freaked out. Although he totally seemed completely unlovable, although he seemed like probably no, nobody here would want to go over and talk to him, or give him a cup of coffee, or hang out, and be just really freaked out. Jesus loved him, and Jesus pitied him, and his command to this unclean spirit to come out, you know, as he, as he says there uh, in verse 8, he says, for, uh, and, and notice the order back in, in verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 8 actually happens before verse 7. Um, he says, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. Jesus speaks that to him first, and then in verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, by God, do not torment me. So this is the instance where Jesus commands this man, the, the unclean spirit, to, to depart from this man. 
And it came right before this, this big outburst where he makes this claim of who Jesus is. And it was a response, you know, to, to, Jesus, to the good news of who Jesus was. It was response to the gospel, which was Christ before this man. He, he, he calls him out. He says, come out of him, you unclean spirit. Now, notice here, there's a huge, this would have been significant, you know, in, in their time, how Jesus deals with this. The unclean spirit is expelled from the demon-possessed man solely by the authoritative word of Jesus, okay? Jesus doesn't ask for his name. He doesn't say, like, what's your name? Okay, now I have authoritative power over you, and I'm going to follow, you know, those rituals. Let's contrast this, you know, with the, with the Greek and, and the Egyptian methods. They had these crazy, you know, convoluted formulas and spells, and they would conjure up these, you know, different, like, formulas in which they were going to try to to have this long, drawn-out spiritual battle where it would go back and forth, and, and, and they would attempt to employ these things in their, in their uh, spiritual battle. You know, it, it was a very, they weren't, the Greeks and the Egyptians, they were aware that there was spiritual activity, that there was demonic activity. And so they attempt to do this, but what, with Jesus, there's no elaborate protocol. There's no, you know, he doesn't need to know the name of his opponent. The effectiveness of Jesus's uh, exorcism here, it doesn't depend on his words. He doesn't have to use a magical formula or a specific catchphrase. Jesus's power to, to overcome demons, to overcome the spiritual realm, rests solely within himself. When Jesus speaks, his word is deed. When he says, do this, it happens. Just as he did at creation, when he spoke, it happened. Whenever Jesus speaks, his word is deed. And that's exactly what happened here. His authority and his power resides in himself. He doesn't need to call on the name of somebody else. He doesn't need to, to do it in this specific formula, but solely speaks, come out of him, you unclean spirit. And he does. Now, Jesus, in verse 9, he asks the man his name, not as a result of wanting to have spiritual authority over him, but so as to reveal the character of this demon and this man to the bystanders, okay? He goes on in verse 9, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion is not actually his name. He doesn't give a name, he, he, this is an attempt to intimidate. Okay, this is an attempt to, to th- kind of throw Jesus off his game. When he says, my name is Legion, for we are many, what he's essentially saying, uh, he's trying to kind of come at Jesus at a different angle. He's kind of still playing that spiritual game of like, oh, I'm not going to give you my name, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to in- attempt to intimidate you further. When, when he, uh, uh, the Greek term Legion is a military term. Okay, it's a, a legion designated, designated the largest uh, troop unit in the Roman army, which, depending upon who you read, ranges somewhere between 5,600 soldiers and 6,800 soldiers. Regardless, it was a lot of people. Uh, the unit of a legion, it was established, and, and it meant to be an emblem of unconquerable power. They operated as a unit that was organized, and when a legion came against you, you were sure to lose. And so 
when this man says that he, or when the demon says that his name is Legion, he's saying, we're united. There's a lot of us and you're not going to win. He's coming at him, uh, you know, with this military term, which adds a, a totally different spin on it. It's not just like, I'm going to go easily. However, you know, he's trying to intimidate Jesus here. He's saying that there's many of us. Now, that doesn't mean that there was like 5,600 to 6,800 like demons in this man. There were a lot. There were many. That doesn't mean that like Satan's a liar and this is an intimidation tactic. So he could just be totally you know, like, oh yeah, there's like a jillion of us in here, you know, come fight. So you just don't, I, I, I don't think that there was like 5,600 of them in here. Um, there were thousands though. So what, what ends up happening, he, uh, he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then this demon, he begs him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now, verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us out to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So, this man, uh, the demon, he attempts to intimidate Jesus. And then on the flip side, right after that, he says, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so Jesus gives them permission. It, it, we should know that Jesus doesn't command them to go into the pigs. He rather just gives them permission to. He doesn't say, I command you to go into the pigs. He, gives, he allows them to do that. So why did he allow them to do that? We obviously see the result of that. The, they, they went into 2,000 pigs. So there's at least 2,000 demons there. Um, they go into the pigs, and then the pigs just crazy right down under the water. They just take off, massive stampede, pig stampede, and just crash right in uh, the water there. So why did Jesus allow them to do that? The first thought that I thought was like, why didn't he just destroy them right then and there? Like it could, you know, he obviously has authority over them. Why, did, why didn't he just deal with it? Well, he doesn't destroy them right then and there because the time of his total demonstration over, over the authority of demons hadn't come yet. It will come at the cross. Colossians 2.15 tells us that he disarmed the, the rulers and authorities, that's demons, and put them to shame by triumphing over them at the cross. So, his, his destruction of the demons doesn't come then, but he allows them permission to go into the pigs. The, the other reason is the entry of the demons into the pigs, it demonstrates to both the man who was possessed and those around that the forces of evil have truly left this man. They see a, a physical manifestation of these pigs charging down, you know, away, all of a sudden, you know, into water, which pigs don't like. So basically, you know, it was an outward aid to their faith. They could see what was happening. But additionally, and, and more importantly, it demonstrated to the people the true character of demons and the, and the demonic realm. Demons and Satan are there to kill and to destroy. John 10, 10 tells us that Satan, the thief, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Oftentimes, we deal with Satan like, like we deal with, uh, you know, with, with one another 
you know, when you're kids, like when you're wrestling, it's like, oh, we're fighting, we're fighting. And then, and then it's like, oh, I tap out, I tap out. There's no tap out with Satan. If at this very moment, Satan was allowed to kill you, he would. Like, there's not a hesitation. There's not, like, a, a little bit of mercy. It's war. There's not, we deal with Satan as the cartoon, not as Satan, the destroyer. That's the, the, the mindset of the majority of, of Christians in America. You know, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, Satan. You know, in a recent, I was reading a recent poll, and actually, I think it was like something like 60% of people who claim to be Christians don't actually believe that, that there's a real Satan. He's actually just a, a, um, a symbol of evil. That's just kind of like, yeah, he's kind of like the, the poster child for evil. But the demonic realm is very real, and we deal with it here, and we need to, to be ready, um, you know, and, and to, just to, to know that it's a reality that we're dealing with here, especially in our city. You know, this has been a stronghold of the enemy for so long, and we're basically sick of it, and we're here to take it back over. You know, not that we have like a lot of power, but we're just going to keep growing slowly until Jesus takes over the city and we have lots of churches and then we'll go to another one somewhere. You know, hopefully we'll do a bunch more as we're growing also. Um, that's the plan. <laughs> we're going to plan more churches, a lot of them. Um, so the true character of Satan is to, to, to destroy, to kill to steal. John 8, 44, when Jesus talks about the devil, he says this. He says the, um, that the devil was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a, he is a liar and the father of lies. So those, the, those things are the characteristics of Satan. There's no, like, mercy rule. There's no second chances. There's no, like, tap out or uncle with Satan, you can't, you know, ask for a second chance. If he has an opportunity to pick you off, he will. We need to be aware of that. We don't need to be scared of it, because the Spirit of God indwells his people, and, and he empowers us um, to live a victorious Christian life, and Satan has been defeated by Christ already. So Jesus allows the the um, demons to go into these pigs to demonstrate these things to the people. Now, 2,000 pigs represented like a massive, I mean, first off, the 2,000 pigs, that, that was like a lot of pigs, but also that's like a lot of uncleanness in the Jewish mind. So Jesus also, you know, they were forbidden to, you know, have those interaction with um, swine, which is, I'm so thankful for the new covenant because carnitas is the way to go. So good. You know, like, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. I'm into that. Um, Carnegie's burrito, man. So good. Thank the Lord. 2,000 pigs represented, like, a massive livelihood. And their, their economic loss was, like, insane from, from this amount of pigs dying. But in the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and the restoration of one man was totally worth it to, to save this one man over saving, you know, great financial assets and these, this great capital that these people may have had. 
Now the story, it's been focused on the, the, the attention, on the rescue of this one man from the, the attack of the demons and this tragic you know, torture that he's been under for so long. But now the story transitions and it, it kind of just turns and centers on the reaction of the locals to the exorcism. So look at uh, verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country and people came to see uh, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Oh, hang on. Uh, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So these swine herdsmen, they were in charge of the, the pigs there. They had the responsibility of safeguarding these animals. And so as they go back, you know, they, go, they run to where the edge of the water is, and they see like 2,000 of their pigs that are under their care in shallow water drowned. I'm sure panic begins to set in. So they just book it out of there, run back to the city. They call everybody out, and they begin to explain. You know, they, they begin to report to the people what had happened. Now, as the people come out, they see, in verse 15, they saw Jesus and the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. So there's a huge stark contrast here. He's now sitting calmly, clothed, and in a sound frame of mind. That is the picture of discipleship. Those who are restored by Jesus, those who have that encounter with Jesus and are saved, they are restored, they're in sound mind, they're sitting there at Jesus' feet, just as this man is. The, the inner torment of this man, of his, his anger, his, you know, the, the controlling nature of the demons, and just the outer, you know, storm of him breaking through things and, and, you know, breaking out of chains and cutting himself, it has been calmed by Jesus. Jesus has brought the, the calm to this man's chaos. He has brought the control to this man's situation. This man has been transformed. Just as, as Romans 12, 2 tells us that we're not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's surely what this man needed. He needed to have his mind renewed because he was a mess. He was in a state that, that was just crazy. A additionally, this man is not only transformed, but he's also a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this man is no longer the, this man who is demon-possessed, who has these old characteristics, but he's a new creation who's clothed in sound frame of mind. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's brand new. And when the people come, the word when it talks about that they, they're looking to see, it actually means like they're inspecting very carefully. They're looking very specifically as if wondering what's gone on here. They're looking to see if it's, in fact, the, the same uh, person. Now, this man has become a new creation. Just as Satan's role 
Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, is to steal, kill, and destroy. In that same passage, Jesus t- says that he, com- he came that we might have life and more abundantly. And so Jesus has made him a new creation and given him new life. Now, the people of the area, they're totally more freaked out by the fact that, by, um, that Jesus was able to exercise this man's demons than they are of the actual man himself. Because what happens? They, they're afraid, they're, you know, maybe afraid of the, of the um, demoniac guy to a certain extent before, but they're more okay with him being crazy than him not being crazy. They're more okay with him living among the tombs and cutting himself because, you know, they're only there for themselves. They don't care about the man, but Jesus in his great compassion goes to the man and deals with him. Jesus came across a lake for the guy to an area that he had really no business being in as a Jew. It's very reminiscent of, of uh, Jesus's mission to come to us. Jesus came to the earth where he didn't need to come. He came on, you know, and made himself of no reputation on, on our behalf that he might live a righteous life for us that we might have the righteousness of God. Now, these people, you know, they witness this crazy miracle, but it doesn't lead to faith. They see it, but it doesn't produce any faith within them. You know, well, oftentimes you'll, I know I've been in discussion before with people, and it's like, well, if, if Jesus showed up right now and did this, then like I would believe. It's like, no way. You know, if, if God would show up right now and, and do that, you wouldn't believe. You know, the story reveals much about the human condition, condition from the point of the people coming from the city as well. Because when God manifests himself in Jesus, and he does come, most often people reject him. And so they begin to beg Jesus to get out of the region. They're like, we're done with you. You know, we don't want to deal with this anymore. They were fine with the man being possessed with demons. At least he wasn't intruding into their lives. You know, he was off with the dead. We didn't have to deal with him. They didn't see this as an amazing instance, you know, where a man who was tormented is now free. They didn't see the great miracle in that chaos was brought to calm by the work of Christ. One commentator says this, he says, countless multitudes still wish Christ far from them for fear his fellowship may cause some social or financial or personal loss. Seeking to save their possessions, they lose their souls. And that's such the case, you know, with, with this group here, that they were intimidated by the fact that they've already lost 2,000 pigs. You know, their economic livelihood was more important to them than people. Their economic uh, status or their social status, where they would have to be in relationships with a man that was crazy or was possessed by demons, you know, that they considered that uh, something that they didn't want to partake in. And in doing so, in seeking to save their possessions, they lose their souls. Now, in verse 18, 
Jesus begins to depart because we're, when Jesus is not welcome, he's not going to stick around, you know, and like force himself upon this group of people. They ask him to leave. And in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So this man, he begs to be with Jesus. And the man, he wanted to join Jesus, but Jesus didn't permit him. However, Jesus did give him a mission. He said, you can't come with me. Here's what you need to do, though. So he, he tells him, uh, you know, here's what you got to do. In, in, in verse 19, go home to your friends. So you've got to go to your family, friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Once again, in this passage, Jesus is associated with God. He makes a divinity claim through his wording. He says, tell them how much the Lord has done with, for you. For the Lord who has healed him is, in fact, Jesus. He's revealing who he is. Now, in times past, and we looked at the book of Mark, whenever it comes out, that Jesus is the Son of God. He tells everybody, like, hey, don't say anything. You know, there's that messianic secret motif that we've talked about before. Here, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't tell the man, hey, don't say anything. He actually tells the man, like, okay, go and tell everybody. A couple reasons. First, the, they were in Gentile territory, and so the Gentiles didn't have any messianic expectations. So he could just leave them to go and say whatever he wanted regarding him without fear of, you know, the, them coming up with, like, here's what we expect from, like, that coming Messiah. They had no clue. They're not dealing with that, you know, and so he was free to go and to, um, to share, but additionally, Jesus has been banished from the area, so he's not allowed to be there, so this is, like, the first missionary into that area. He's like, I can't be here, but you can, and you go to your friends and your family, and you start there, and you tell them all the stuff that the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. This, in the Gospel of Mark, this guy becomes the first missionary that's sent, and he's a Gentile sent to the Gentiles. You know, it's, Jesus is just getting crazy up in here. Now, when he does this, although Jesus is banished from this region— the people who are trying to get rid of him, they don't get rid of Jesus because he's present in the message of the gospel delivered by this man. As his followers proclaim the gospel message, Jesus is present there. It has to be present with all of his followers. So here's, where, here's how we need to apply this. Like this man we need to carry the gospel into our friends and family. And it's, sometimes it's like intimidating to deal with that, but you just got to start where Jesus told this man to start. You know, he says, he says to him, uh, we should start with basically what the Lord has done for us and how he's had mercy on us. Because everybody knows your own story and you, you don't get tangled up in your words when you're telling your own story. Like, hey, here's who I used to be. Here's who I was. And then the Lord saved me. You know, just, I love how Jesus doesn't tell them, like, hey, come up with this great theological thing. Just go there. People know your life, and then tell them, you know, what happened. 
and how he's had mercy upon them. So we don't need to be intimidated with our own story. Um, and no matter how much bondage that you know, people are in, or no matter how much bondage we may feel in, although it seems like people have a lot of freedom and they can do whatever they want, in fact, they're enslaved like this man. And Jesus will pierce that darkness into their life. He will come in into that unclean area that, that's difficult for anybody to penetrate because the enemy has been, you know, taking up residency there or guarding that person or, or that stronghold. And when Jesus comes in, he can identify with that person, just like he was able to identify with this man who had been demon-possessed and tormented. Okay, this man, um, this demon-possessed man, he was cast out of the city. He was rejected. Jesus would be rejected by his own people. This man was, was sent to the land of the dead, and, and in fact, Jesus would be sent to the land of the dead on our behalf. And this man was, you know, this, this demon-possessed man, he was, he was out there crying out in anguish and cutting himself, and his flesh was being wounded, and Jesus would do the same on our behalf. He would, he would voluntarily allow himself, his own flesh, to be marred on our behalf so that we didn't have to feel that torment any further. Jesus can identify with everybody, even the person that seems like they have it together, even though they seem like they're free, there's bondage there. It might seem one way, but Jesus knows the situation that they're in. This man, this demon-possessed man, he was in chains. He broke through all of them only to find out that he was still enslaved, but Jesus would break that man's chains through his death and resurrection. Jesus would deal with the, the root of this man's issues through his final work upon the cross and allow this man to truly be free. And so because Jesus has done those things for us, we have the opportunity to tell our friends, to tell our families, to remember the good things that the Lord has done for us and how he has had mercy upon us. And so that is something, you know, that we can be looking to, that we can be remembering the Lord's faithfulness and allowing him to, to develop that heart of compassion for those who are lost as he had. It has to be motivated out of love as, as he was motivated to see this man saved, this lost man, you know, redeemed and restored. Jesus is in the business of making things new. Jesus didn't come to take our lives and patch them up. He came to make us brand new, not to take something that, you know, we would just want to put a patch on. Jesus says, that's not good enough. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to make you better. And so, well, uh, remember that as we worship. Lord, we're thankful that you, Lord, went to the cross on our behalf. Lord, and, and like the man um, who violently wounded himself, Lord, you voluntarily allowed yourself to be wounded on our behalf, Lord, that we might be free, Lord, just from torment and from anguish, that we might have a rest in you and you alone,
And Lord, we're thankful for the finished work of the cross. Lord, and that you have saved us. Lord, there's no other name that we can be saved by. And so we look to you and you alone. We want to remember you now as we worship. Lord, we want to remember your faithfulness and the good things that you have done. And we love you, Jesus. Amen.